just pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. You may be seated. If you have a, a Bible, I want to encourage you to join me in, in Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy chapter number two. Deuteronomy chapter number two. So if you're joining us for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, we started a journey through this book of Deuteronomy just a couple of weeks ago. It's the, the fifth book of the Bible, and it's a series of three speeches that Moses is giving, and this is important, that Moses is giving to the second generation, to the children and grandchildren of those who came out of Egypt. That first generation marched right up to the edge of the promised land, but when they heard reports that there were giants, sons of Anak, in the land, uh, they said, we can't go. And that lack of trust angered Yahweh, and he said, none of you will get the good land that I had promised to give you, and so they were turned around. Moses rehearses that journey in chapter number one, and now he, in chapter number two, begins a second chronicling of a journey, this time with that second generation coming back to the place where their parents were. But he's going to talk about a few stops along the way in chapters two and three. And yet before we get to begin to read in Deuteronomy, I've got to, I've got to tell you two rather ugly stories from the book of Genesis, so we know what's going on when we get to the book of Deuteronomy. First, if you were to go back and read in Genesis 25, which we're not going to, but just briefly, there were two sons that were born to Isaac and Rebekah. They were, their names were Jacob and, and Esau. In the womb, the Lord told the mom, Rebekah, that the elder would serve the younger, Basically, that flips the birth order, which was really important in those days because in those days, the older son received the family blessing and a double inheritance. Esau was the one born first, so he should get the blessing. And yet at the end of their father's life, when Isaac thought he was going to die, he called in Esau and said, you're the oldest. I'm going to give you the blessing and the birthright, but first go prepare me a meal. And so Esau went to hunt while Esau was gone. Jacob slides in wearing his brother's clothing and says, dad, bless me. And the dad Isaac, whose eyesight was not well, said, who are you? And he said, I am Esau. He was not Esau, it was Jacob. I am Esau, bless me. And Jacob received the blessing and the inheritance from his father. When Esau got home and heard about that, he became furious and said, I'm going to kill my brother. And so Jacob ran away. 20 years later, there's the reunion between Jacob and Esau Jacob is fearful, but Esau comes with forgiveness. And Jacob says, go on ahead of me. My family and I will come to be with your family in, in days to come. But that was a lie. Jacob never went to go be with Esau and his family. Their stories continue throughout Scripture. The family of Jacob becomes known as the Israelites because Jacob is Israel. The family of Esau becomes known as the Edomites. Again, you just need to know this background for when we enter Deuteronomy chapter number two. There's one more story, though, that's relevant, and it's in Genesis 19. It's the it's two brothers again. Their names are Ammon and Moab, and they are sons of Lot. 
Now, who's Lot? Lot's the nephew of Abraham. Lot lives in a city called Sodom. It's a very wicked city that God judges by sending fire from heaven to destroy this city. But Lot and his family are offered a way of escape by an angel. As Lot and his family run from the fire to fall, Lot's wife tragically and very strangely dies, leaving Lot and his two daughters to hide in a cave. The two daughters watch as fire falls from heaven and assuming that everyone on the earth has been consumed other than the three of them in the cave. And so rather than wait for the end of the world to come, they, they plot something very sinister. These two daughters get their father drunk and they sleep with their father Each one of the daughters has a child by her father, and those two sons, one is named Ammon, the other is named Moab. As the story continues in Scripture, the family of Moab, the child of Lot and one daughter, become the Moabites. The child of uh, Ammon, the child of Lot and his other daughter, become known as the Ammonites. That's... That's some important scripture or something important to know as we enter into Deuteronomy chapter number two. And I know you're thinking that's not relevant. It will be in just a moment. Let's begin reading in Deuteronomy chapter two, verse number one. This is Moses, again, talking to that second generation. He says, then we turned back and set out toward the wilderness along the route to the Red Sea as Yahweh had directed me. For a long time, we made our way around the hill country of Seir. Now behind me, I highlighted the words for a long time because in that, just those brief words, Moses is rehearsing 38 years. Now he doesn't go in detail here. It'd be like us saying, yeah, we went on vacation, but you don't tell everything you did on vacation. But in those words, Moses is saying that's the 38 years we spent wandering in the wilderness. And it covers things like the rebellion against Moses when the earth opened up, when when Aaron's rod budded to show Yahweh had chosen Aaron and Moses as leaders. It it encompasses Moses' hitting of the rock and losing the opportunity to enter the promised land. And one of the Strangest, but probably one of my favorites, is there's a story of a talking donkey. It probably didn't look just like this donkey, but there's a story of a talking donkey, and it's all in the last half of the book of Numbers. And so Moses says for a long time, and then he says in verse number two, after that long time, Yahweh said to me, you have made your way around this hill country long enough. Now turn north. Now, you got to be a real student to really grasp this, but those two words long enough in the Hebrew are used earlier in chapter number one when Yahweh came to Moses and said, that first generation, you've been at Sinai long enough. It's time to go. And by using the same language, Moses is tying these two events together. What's going on at both of these events? Yahweh was teaching his people about him. And when he says you've been here long enough, what he's saying is, I've taught you what you need to know. Now let's go live it. If you think back to Sinai, what was uh, from, from Egypt all the way to Sinai, what was Yahweh teaching his people? Well, remember, these were people who were slaves in the land of Egypt where there were multiple gods. 
So what does Yahweh have to teach these people? Hey, I am the most powerful God. I am your provider with manna and water. I am your ever-present guide with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And I am going to take you to Sinai to show you I am a loving, committed, and a holy God. And once they knew this about Yahweh, they were supposed to now follow him into the promised land and go live in relation with this God. They got to the promised land, or they got near the promised land and said, we can't do it. And so they were turned around, leaving Yahweh with a new time of teaching. And in those 38 years, Yahweh began teaching this second generation. Well, what did they need to know? Well, they needed to know that Yahweh's power and deliverance and protection and provision and holiness to their parents was still who he is. But they also needed to know that Yahweh would not accept disobedience. That's the kind of God he is. He doesn't accept disobedience. But he is a God of mercy and forgiveness. They needed to know that Yahweh is a God who would keep his word. None of that first generation would go except for two. But he was a God of compassion and care because even though those people rebelled against him, he continued to every day feed them and water them, make their clothes, take care of their clothing. He never left his, he never took his presence from them. He was care- what this group needed to know about Yahweh is that even though the people had failed Yahweh, Yahweh would never fail his people. And I read about these two times of teaching, and I realize, you know, every generation needs to know God for themselves. Please hear me. Parents, grandparents, you need to teach your children what you know about God. You need to. You must. Because your story is a part of their story. But we should also be encouraging our children to know God for themselves. I would say it this way. Our children should know the faith of their fathers. But our children must grow their own faith in the Father. And it doesn't start at church. It starts in your homes. Our kids should hear us talk about how God has worked in our lives so they know our story because it's a part of their story. My daughter, taking her to Virginia, God was working in my life, but it's a part of her story. But at some point, she's not going to follow dad anymore. She's got to know the Lord well enough to know when he says, go, I, I follow. Mass, do your, do your kids know how you were introduced to Jesus? They need to know that story. Do your, does your family know why you follow Jesus and not Allah or Buddha? Do, do your children know why you choose to worship in this church family? Your children need to know your story because it's a part of their story. But we also, as parents and grandparents, need to, need to show our children how to grow in knowing Jesus for themselves. Meaning, moms and dads, if you're not reading your Bibles, why would your kids ever pick one up? If they don't ever hear you talking about, well, let's take that to prayer, why would that be their first response? 
If, if we don't sing in church or if we make excuses not to come in church, why would we ever expect our children to do anything different other than what we're showing them? Last Sunday night, and I did not know Trinity was going to be here because I, I wouldn't have probably have done this had I known she was going to be here. But last Sunday night, my daughter texted me and said, Dad, I just got done watching your sermon, that, the sermon from Deuteronomy 1 last week. And she said, hey, look at my Bible. And she was showing me her Bible marked up with notes as she listened to the sermon. And I said, you know, when I saw that, you know, you know why she does that? Because her mom journals what she's learning from the Lord. Our children aren't just going to pick something up magically. They, they need to be shown what it looks like in, in following the Lord. And I would encourage you to get your children to places where they will encounter God. And I don't just mean church and Sunday school. I, I'm talking about, like, bring your children to prayer meetings. Bring your children to small groups. Bring your children to events where they're going to be impacted by the Word of God and by other people of God. And I know this is going to sound strange to you, but one of, one of the most fun things our family ever did, and I had, Trevor was, I think, a senior in high school, Trinity would have been a freshman, and we were living in Virginia, and we went to David Platt's church, and David Platt was one of my favorite preachers, and he had this thing called Secret Church. When I heard about it, I signed our family up to go, and then I came home and told them. It was a Bible study that started at 7 p.m. on a Friday night and lasted for six hours. Yeah, you can imagine what two teenagers would have thought like on the way up to a, it was an hour and a half drive to get to the church and thinking the whole way, we got to spend six hours. And after it was over, my kids both said, when is it, it going to be next year? We want to go. And we have got to introduce our children to ways and opportunities to, to be impacted by God. And may I say this, I don't, I don't, this does not happen in our church at all to my knowledge whatsoever. But we have got to let our kids experience God in a way that might be different than the way we did. There are some churches, there are some, there are some Christians, I should say, there are some Christians who would say, you know, the only music you should ever sing in church are the hymns. And I know why they're saying that, because those hymns are so important to them, because that's what they grew up singing in church. That's what they know, and those songs should be so important to them. But we have to think of what we're saying when we say, well, those are the only songs we're singing. When, when we dismiss and criticize new songs, we're refusing to acknowledge that God is still equipping his body with new songwriters who are experiencing God in new ways. I think like, I love the hymns of the old, but you know what would excite my heart more than Amazing Grace is for this church to stand and sing a song that was written by someone in this church who experienced God in a fresh way, in such a way that they're like, I want to write about this and I want to put it to music. And we as a family get to sing the song that one of our own has written about their experience with God. But, but we'll never do that if all we ever do is sing the old songs. But I love the old songs. But I also love to hear how God is working afresh and anew in people's lives.
Let's get back to the text. And here's where these family stories we talked about earlier come in. Verse number four. Moses says, give the people these orders. This is Yahweh speaking. You are about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. Verse 6. You are to pay them in silver for the silver, I'm sorry, for the food you eat and the water you drink. Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your, your journey through this vast wilderness. These 40 years Yahweh your God has been with you and you have not lacked anything. Verse 8. So we went on past our relatives, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir. And it goes on and names a few things that I have a hard time pronouncing, so we'll skip it, right? Let's go back to that history of deception between Jacob and Esau. Yahweh tells the Israelites, don't, don't try to go to war with them. They're going to be scared of you. Well, why would they be scared of, of Jacob? I mean, Jacob's descendants, they're coming and saying, well, we just want to pass through. We don't, we don't want to turn to the right or left. We're just, we just, and we'll buy things from you. Why would they be scared of it? Well, we'll think of it. This army of people show up at the edge of your nation and there's this history of, I'm going to say one thing and do another. So suddenly Yahweh is saying, they're going to be scared of you, but don't you react to them because we don't read it here. But if you were to read it in Numbers, the Edomites actually come to the edge of their land with their soldiers ready for war. And what, what actually happens is they refuse passage through the land. Moses doesn't detail it much. He ref, they refuse passage through the land, and so they have to go around the land of the people of Esau because they just didn't trust them. Let's keep reading, though, and we're going to get to these other families. Look at verse number 9. Then Yahweh said to me, do not harass the Moabites. Okay, so there's that other group, the Moabites. Or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I don't know, does that sound familiar? I have given Ar uh, to the descendants of Lot as a possession. And it says the Emites used to live there, are people strong and numerous, as tall as the Anakites. Now, I highlighted Anakites. We're not going to talk about it yet, but I, we'll get to it later. But I want you to, don't forget, that's what he says. He says, he says, there used to be these really big people who lived there, just like the Anakites. And then, if I can read verse 12, I'm going to skip verse 11 because there's names there again. Verse 12. It says, Horites used to live there, but the descendants of Esau, don't forget this, drove them out. They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in their place just as Israel did in the land Yahweh gave them as their possession. So he, he says about the Moabites, don't, 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 don't try to take their land. I've already given it to them. Now, now skip all the way down to verse 19, if you would, with me. Verse 19. Now we're going to get to that third family group. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. I can't man, I, That sounds so familiar. And then if we skip again to verse 21, 
They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. But the Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites who drove them out and settled in their place. Right? So you, so you get this. He, he go, they get to the land of, of Esau and he says, now don't, don't go after them. Leave them alone. But then he says the same thing about Moab and Ammon. Like Moab and Ammon, like they don't have that same history with Jacob and his, his descendants. So what's going on? Well, it actually goes back to the talking donkey. When the king of the land of Moab saw the Israelites coming, he contacted a sorcerer. His name was Balaam. And he brings in this sorcerer and he says, you see all those people there? Curse them. So Balaam, he gets on this donkey who ends up talking to him and he gets there to curse the land of Israel. But long story short, he tries four times to curse them and he's so afraid of Yahweh who gets involved that he cannot curse. He actually ends up blessing them. But now, as Moses is relaying it, now his people are coming back up on this land of people who had tried to curse them. Well, what do you think they're going to do? Well, if someone cursed me, I would be looking, I'd be looking for revenge or retaliation. And Yahweh says, don't, don't you try to get back at the person who cursed you and you leave his brother alone too. Which I, I look at the underlying principle and I realize, you know, Yahweh was less concerned about how others treated his people and most concerned about how his people treated others. He's basically saying, hey, you've been deceived. And people are going to fight you, or you, you are a deceiver, and people are going to fight you, but don't you fight back. He's saying, people are going to curse you, but don't you curse, don't you offer that revenge, don't go for revenge. And what's so crazy is all of these people are related to Abraham, Israel, Jacob, Esau, Edom, Lot was his nephew, Ammon. They're all related, which makes it even more important as a watching world sees fractured families interact, either with hatred or with kindness. So I want to take you just through a few truths from this text that I think are really important and very relevant to today. Un, first, unresolved conflict carries a lasting effect. It had been generations since Jacob had deceived Esau, but there was still a distrust between these two people groups. But it, it goes more than distrust. Think, think with me for just a moment. Think with me for just a moment. As the Edomites watched the Israelites move, what did they see every day? The Israelites, they got food from heaven. They got water from a rock. They had a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, which represented the very presence of the creator of the heaven and earth living in the middle of their camp. And the Edomites over here looking, saying, look at all you have. And here's what they're thinking. And do you know how you got that? You stole the blessing that was for our forefather. Everything you have, you got through thievery. What's no wonder that they met them at the edge of their land and said, you're not coming through here. 
this unresolved conflict. In fact, if you were to trace these two people groups, the Israelites and the Edomites, through the Old Testament, you'd get to one of the last books of the Old Testament. It's a prophet, Obadiah. And Obadiah is preaching to the Edomites saying, you stood and cheered while your brothers, the Israelites, were defeated by a foreign army. Now the curse is coming on you. But man, this, this goes to, this starts in Genesis and goes to the end of the Old Testament, this unresolved conflict. See, the thing is, if you think about that, Edom... They, they were almost controlled by Israel because they just kept waiting for Israel to fail. And when they finally did, they cheered about it, which means they were never free to enjoy their life on their own until the person that they hated finally came to their own downfall, which means for all those generations, a people group that wasn't even thinking about the Edomites were controlling the very minds of the Edomites. By refusing to forgive, their lives were controlled by the fate of others. No freedom. Everything depended on what happens to them. Hey, if you think about it, when, 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 when Yahweh says, don't, don't, go, don't, re, don't go for revenge, don't retaliate, like what did Israel lose by not going after someone who had cursed them? Nothing, they still got the promised land. The curses of men do not stop the blessings of God. People may have treated you wrongly, but God never has. You read that in verse number seven. Your brother may have treated you this way, but your father has cared for you this entire way. There's people in this room and you have been hurt badly by others. Some you've been hurt by family. Some you've been hurt by those you have considered friends. And there are some who are here and there are some who are probably not here because they have been hurt by people in the church. And I'm not dismissing and I'm not downplaying the fact that you have been hurt and very likely may have been hurt deeply. But I'm I want to remind you, holding on to bitterness or seeking revenge against someone ultimately hurts you. Someone said it like this, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You're holding on to a grudge will we'll never bring the happiness that we're looking for. We want people to suffer, and we won't go forward until they suffer, meaning until they suffer, we're suffering. So many people who have hurt us, they go on with their lives seemingly oblivious to the fact that they hurt us. And without forgiving them, we're just bringing more hurt into our own lives. And we've got to understand, church, holding on to bitterness is not the cure for being hurt. The answer is in Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to forgive one another as Christ forgave you. 
I can't forgive them. What if Jesus had said that to you? But I've hurt, they hurt me so much. And what if Jesus said those words to you? Our call is not to forgive as someone else has forgiven us. Our call, we're to be forgiven as Christ has forgiven us of all things. And I know, I know immediately you're thinking, like, but I can't forget what they did. Can I just help you? In the book of Jeremiah, Yahweh says, I will remember their sins no more. Th- think about that. The all-knowing God, the omniscient God says, I will remember their sins no more. Can an omniscient God forget anything? No, he knows everything. So how does he say, I will remember their sins no more? When we read that Yahweh forgets something, it means he is choosing not to act on something he knows. He doesn't forget that we sinned, but he chooses not to treat us like sinners. He's choosing to treat us as if we have not sinned, even though he is very aware that we have. And that is what he calls us to do for others. And you say, I could never do that. And you are absolutely right. We can't. We can't forget on our own. But with the Spirit of God working in us, we can. And we know that we can because we're actually instructed, we're commanded to do that very thing. In 2 Corinthians 5, this is what it says. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Our reconciliation to God, our salvation only comes because he does not count our sins against us. And then he says, now you have the same ministry. Go do the same thing for others. And listen, the answer is you've been hurt by others. You may not be able to forget that, but you don't have to treat them according to how they hurt you. You don't have to. And by the way, marriages need the same thing. In the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, we read, love holds no record of wrongs. It doesn't mean the past wrongs are ignored, but one's wrongful actions in the past, my spouse's actions in the past will not determine the way I treat them today. We're called to do that. Love holds no record of wrongs. So so we see that unresolved conflict lasts a very, very long time. We also see this. We have to recognize that God's path is always purposeful. I'll be real short here, but I'm not sure if you caught this. The reason I highlighted the word Anakites was because both in Moab and Ammon, we see that people like the Anakites were driven out. Why does that even matter? You remember the reason the first generation of Israelites wouldn't go into the promised land? Because there's big people there, sons of Anak. And what Yahweh is showing is, I could drive people like that out. I have a reason I wanted you to go to Moab and to Ammon, because I wanted to show you the way that I can work if you'll just trust me. Todd, Jamie, I love what you shared this morning. 
And I think it's so important for each of us to share how God is working in our lives because we're all going to experience God in our lives and often in the ways that other people have and the ways that other people will. I mean, how many of you that don't have kids in college yet were encouraged by what words Jamie shared this morning? How do I pray for my children? Like, I was very encouraged by that, right? And then there's those of you that your kids have already grown up. And you know what? There's going to be some of you that can share, hey, my kids did this, and this was a decision that they made when they were on their own. But you know what? I kept praying for them, and the Lord brought them back. Man, those are stories of redemption that we need to be celebrating and joyfully coming together and sharing our stories as encouragement to one another. When we share how God was faithful in our valleys, Others may find encouragement to trust God in their valleys. A couple of uh, weeks ago, I shared that, uh, that I, at one, one Sunday, sat at a stop sign when we lived in Virginia, and, and to the right was the church, and to the left would have been, I'm just going to go home and go back. It was a Sunday morning, and I'm the pastor, and I got to the stop sign, and I'm like, everything in me wants to just go back home, but I know, Lord, that's not what you want, and I turned in there. I just shared that with you. It was, it was a difficult moment in my life. I got home that day, and a man who was in this congregation here texted me and said, Pastor Brian, you won't believe this. This morning, I got in my truck, and I turned the ignition. And before I put it from park to drive, I thought, do I really want to go? I don't really want to go. And then he said, but Lord, I know you want me to, so I will. He said, I came. And I sat there while you told, you told the same story that you went through. And he said, I was so encouraged by that, that I'm not the only one that ever feels like that. And I was like, yes, that's what happens when we share of God's faithfulness in our lives. We encourage others who are going to go through similar circumstances in theirs. Because while your circumstances might be new to you, they're not to God. He's walked someone through it before. Last thing, God uses ugly stories to weave the beauty of the gospel. Next Sunday, I'm going to come back to the story of Jacob and Esau, and we're going to talk a little bit about that more. But today, for the rest of the time, I just want to focus back on Moab and Ammon. Remember, remember the origin of these two, two children. Their, their mothers got their father drunk, and so like it was an ugly, twisted story. But placed in the hands of God, what happens? Well, long after this second generation of Israel comes into the promised land, there's a story that's found in another book of the Bible about an Israelite family, and it's the story of Ruth. As a young lady, Ruth marries into this Israelite family, but then tragedy strikes in the, the father and the two sons, one of them being Ruth's husband, they, they die. And Ruth decides that I'm going to make my mother-in-law's home my home, and she goes to live with her mother-in-law, and, and, and these two widows living together. They're so poor. The only food that they can find is what's left after the harvest, is, is, is whatever's left on the ground after the harvest. 
The landowner where Ruth was picking up some of the gleanings, he sees her. He said, well, man, she's pretty. And he begins to pursue her and eventually asks to marry her. But then all of a sudden we run into customs we don't have to deal with, but they did back then. And find out that, man, for this guy, his name was Boaz, for this guy to actually marry Ruth there is a huge financial investment that it's going to take for them to get married. And it's going to cost his reputation. Because Ruth was from the land of Moab. She was a Moabite. And the Israelites hated the Moabites. Now this Israelite man wants to have a Moabite wife and it's going to cost you your reputation and you're, going to, you're willing to spend that much money to make her your wife. And this man, Boaz, he, he does. He, he pours out so much money to make this girl his wife and he loses his reputation. And they get married and they have a child and that child's name is Obed who has a child named Jesse who has a child named David who becomes the greatest king in the land of Israel to ever rule and reign. Which, which means the greatest king of Israel was in the line of a Moabite. But what's even more fascinating is, do you know who comes from the royal seat of David? <laughs> the Messiah of Israel. The Messiah of the world, the King of Kings, Jesus himself. If you read the first chapter of the New Testament, the author Matthew, he highlights the fact that in Jesus' genealogy is Ruth the Moabite while talking about Jesus, the Son of God. Like, I'm like, wow. So if you see this, this man was so moved by love for an outsider that he, he paid a great price and gave up his entire reputation. And yet that act of love was so important because it brought his people under the reign of the greatest king of Israel. I step back and I'm like, that's the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we read that Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sakes so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Ha! And I'm like, wow, Jesus walked earth's dusty streets so that we, the outsider, we, the sinner, could walk heaven's golden streets. He gave his treasures so we could be his bride. <laughs> but then if you read the end of that, 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 21, it says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, spotless reputation, to become sin for us. So that we, through his rights, so that we, through him, might have the righteousness of God. I mean, 
Jesus is spotless and yet he takes off his spotless robes of righteousness and he takes on our filthy garments of sin and he just does the swap and he says, I'm sinless, but I'll go to the cross and bear your sin. And you're a sinner, but I'll cover you in my robes of righteousness. Meaning Jesus didn't just walk the dusty streets so we could walk heaven's golden streets, but he gave up his sinless record to take our record of sin upon himself. And I'm like, wow. And then he rises from the dead and he becomes the king of kings, the perfect and eternal ruler of the world. And he invites everyone, anyone, to enter into his kingdom by faith. Believe who I am. Believe what I have done and come follow me and we get to live under his reign in his kingdom. Which means the ugly story of the cross where Jesus' own people crucified him becomes the beautiful way of redemption. All because Jesus didn't respond to those who cursed him and lied about him and hated him and murdered him. If he didn't respond that way, why should we? So take this away. Can I encourage you? Learn about Jesus and keep teaching your kids about him. Show them how you grow so that they'll know how they can grow. And then give them the freedom to figure out who Jesus is for themselves. And then search your heart so you can deal with unresolved conflict. Because if you don't, it's going to keep going. I remember one Sunday there were two ladies, and I didn't, I knew both of the ladies, but I didn't know that they were related in any way. Two ladies met in the back of our church auditorium after the service was over, and they were hugging and crying one, with one another, and I thought, well, that's really nice. There's two church members, and they're having a good cry with one another. I, I didn't know what was going on, right? Only to be told the story that they were sisters. One sat in this, one sat up front in church here, the other sat in the back of church there. They wouldn't not go to their own church, but they hadn't talked to each other in four years. They didn't go to parties. They kept their families apart from one another. And I don't know if it was something that was said in the, in the message or if it was just the Holy Spirit working, but at the end of the service, the two of them met in the back and they were crying. And I'm thinking, if you would have asked me, I would have told you that both of those families were stellar families that loved the Lord and yet there was still seeds of bitterness that had been planted in their hearts so deeply that they kept their families from one another because they were upset with one another. I'm telling you, unresolved conflict, it never is just about the two people. There's always parties involved. So please, learn to deal with it the way Jesus has dealt with you. And then, man, we got to expect the ugly to become beautiful. We probably all have ugly stories that placed in the hands of God become beautiful. Well, it's because we have a God who says about him that he is a God who can make all things good. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, he can work all 
things together for good. It doesn't say that all things are good. No, no. We sometimes give him things that are not good at all. But in his hands, he can work all things together for good if we love him and we follow him. I don't know if there was someone or something happening in your hearts or between families or, or anything, that if there's some unresolved conflict, my, my prayer is that we as a church do the best. We'll do it imperfectly, right? But we'll do the best that we can to follow Jesus the way Jesus has loved on us. Would you pray with me? And worship team, we're not going to sing, but Kara, would you mind playing something? When you, if, if you want to pray, you pray. You go ahead and do that, but, but would you mind playing something while we do this? Would you bow your heads and would you pray?